It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. It's always interesting when you look at your life and realize you have a problem you didn't know existed. (laughs) Throughout the course of the pandemic, I feel like it's offered a lot of really interesting reflections on things in terms of habits, behaviors, traumas, things that maybe a lot of us haven't addressed in our lives. And interestingly enough, I've been kind of looking at my budget for life and my expenditures and whatnot kind of pre-pandemic. And I mean, it's not even post-pandemic. We're still in it. I hate that terminology because we're technically still in it. That's a whole nother conversation. But in kind of looking at my monthly budget, my expenditures, I've noticed that I've spent a lot less money, Whitney, on, I guess I would say like frivolous things or impulse buying. And as a result of kind of taking my financial life and my looking at my spending in a different way, my budget in a different way. And we actually have a a cool upcoming episode with Jesse Meekum, who's from You Need a Budget, which I'm looking forward for us to share in the near future here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. But all of that is to say is recently one of the financial articles that popped up for me was about these German researchers, these psychologists that have discovered in some of their research... This is a little bit of a clickbaity title, to be honest with you, but nonetheless, the, the article is interesting. We will link to this article from Fast Company in our show notes at wellevator.com. Our website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll have this article and any of the resources we mention in this episode down there in the show notes and the transcript. So this article came out at the time of this recording only, uh, gosh, three days ago. And these German psychologists, Whitney, were trying to analyze psychologically why we as humans overspend, why we shop too much, why we impulse buy, why we leverage our financial resources in deeply emotionally motivating ways. And apparently the researchers at the Germany's Julius, my cat, good job, Julius, the Julius Maximilians Universität found a solution in their research. So basically, they carried out this research on 250 participants, and they found that there were, there were two buckets of people they found, generally speaking. And the one bucket were people that impulse buy, that emotionally purchase things, were in the category of pleasure seekers. They want enjoyment. They're driven by spontaneity and variety and curiosity, like, you know, treating themselves to a truffle or a piece of chocolate or a shirt they've never had or adding a great pair of jeans to their wardrobe. So these pleasure seekers are constantly looking for that hit, right? They want the experience, the variety, the novelty. So, you know, curbing the expenditures for the pleasure seekers, I guess, are a matter of curbing the spontaneity by forcing a pause between the emotional urge and then the actual purchase. So in the research, they're saying that they're suggesting some low-tech solutions to this. Like they say, put a note on your wallet or your purse that has the word stop on it or immediately limiting the access to your money by you know locking cash in a drawer or a lockbox or keeping credit cards in a place you can't get to. So the goal, I guess, for the people that are pleasure seekers is to try and halt or stultify the impulse to buy. The other category here, which is really interesting, are security seekers. And apparently they're much slower to buy. Like they'll stand in front of a thing they want and think like, is this going to make me feel as good as it looks? Should I really buy this? And they'll spend, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes hovering over the buy button on the internet. So I guess for security seekers, the, the key is to not is simply to not give themselves time to consider. Like they suggest you walk away, stand up, take a break from the computer. Stop hovering over the buy button on Amazon. Just walk away. Walk away and stop ruminating so much. So if you click through, they reference this really long study that, again, we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's an entire research abstract talking about these different kind of impulse buyers. And interestingly, though, if you get deeper into the research wit, 
you find that security seekers are just as likely to impulse buy as pleasure seekers and just as likely to want to treat themselves. But the motivational state really plays a huge role here. So the researchers also found in the study that people who have a dwindling bank balance are less likely to buy, but a pleasure seeker who just got a promotion or a bonus at work is likely to celebrate further via consumerism and materialism. So they're saying basically like you need to check your mood, you need to check your emotional state before you start to purchase things. All of that is to say, I acknowledge through this that for me over the years, I have definitely bought a lot of things, Whitney, from you know food to clothing to musical instruments because I think my impulse buy, my motivation has been rooted historically in like... I think this thing is going to make me feel better. I feel like I'm not enough. I feel like I need to prove to people I've got cool clothing. I feel like for me, a lot of the impulse buy has either been to like make myself feel better because I've been depressed and, and a lot of my mental health issues I think have manifested in impulse buying. But I think there's another layer of I want to impress people with the stuff that I have. I think one of the reasons I've been so obsessed with like getting a certain car or a piece of clothing or certain shoes over the years has been sort of this social hierarchy. I need to show people like I'm successful. I need to show people I'm worthy. So this is it, it's super interesting to get into the mechanics of consumerism and this idea of impulse buying. And so I want to bounce it back to you after that intro to see like, is this something at all that resonates with you? And if you look at at sort of your purchasing history or how you buy things, do you feel like impulse buying and emotionally motivated buying has been a part of your life and your sort of financial history? It's an interesting question because it's not very conscious for me. I was actually thinking about this yesterday because I went clothes shopping for the first time in a while. I love going to secondhand stores and Buying clothes is usually less expensive that way, but also it's better for the environment, especially if it's used clothes. I actually get the majority of my clothes, especially previous to COVID, through clothing swaps, which is completely free. And I would notice both when I do secondhand shopping, clothes swaps, that there's this desire to have different outfits, because I'll have these moments where I, I don't like any of my clothes anymore. I don't feel confident in them. And it's fascinating to me because I also noticed during COVID that because I wasn't going out much, that I was just kind of wearing things around the house that felt comfortable. And I think a lot of people notice this. The only time that it felt important for me to dress up relatively was if I was on camera for something, you know, like a talk or another podcast or something like that, something where I felt like I needed to present myself more. So clothes are interesting to me because that's like kind of on the splurge side for me. And it also ties into this conversation of buying something for a reason to impress people, for example. And I was reflecting on this yesterday, how like I got this boost in confidence by buying certain clothes and how I'd spent money that wasn't a ton amount, but it wasn't a super high amount of money, but it was definitely more than I typically spend in a day. And I was able to uh, justify it because I'm like, all right, well, I've got these new outfits and I'm going to feel so good in them and I can wear them for this long and that's going to boost my self-esteem. And and then that was interesting to me too. And I, I guess like clothing in general, Jason, is something I'm very fascinated by. Simultaneously, yesterday, I was wearing an outfit that I felt very comfortable in, but not very confident in. And I was reflecting on how it felt when I was in the clothing store. I kept having these moments of like, are people going to look at me and judge my clothes? Are they going to think that I am dressing weird or I'm not pretty or it doesn't flatter my body? Are my panty lines showing? Is that embarrassing? Like all of these little things that I kept noticing and then I kept coming back around to the fact that I felt comfortable in them and that's all that mattered. I was around all these strangers, so it really didn't matter what they thought of me. But it's fascinating how many of us have been conditioned into being so concerned about what other people think of our clothes. And then we have to spend all this money. And another thing that came up for me was how, as a woman, 
I felt a lot of pressure to look pretty. And I often think about that and how my worth has often been been associated with whether or not I look pretty and how much effort it takes and time and oftentimes money to produce what I believe is pretty within myself. And that's fascinating to me because when I step back and examine it, it's odd. Like, why do I feel that pressure to be pretty? I've also had conversations, and I I think we brought this up in a recent episode, Jason, about the pressure to like dress a certain way. And part of the reason that I got these clothes is because I'm going to be speaking at an event in a few days, and I didn't feel confident in any of the clothes that I had. And I also didn't feel like the clothes that I had fit what I believe the atmosphere to be and the type of people that would be there. And that desire to fit in and to impress people, to give that first impression to them of looking attractive and looking put together and looking like I'm valuable. And that ties into this whole conversation. You know, when you talk about impressing people through our purchases, like, cars and such. I mean, there's an opposite side to it too, Jason, because having my Tesla, which first of all, the Model 3 is so common, just as you predicted, Jason. Yesterday also, I was coming back from my clothing spree, my shopping spree, and noticed so many Tesla Model 3s just in this like mile radius of where I was coming. And it doesn't bother me. I was like, this is cool. I love my car. It's neat to see other people. And it's actually very comforting, Jason, because I actually felt insecure in some ways about having a Tesla in two elements. One was that like, I didn't want to come across braggy, you know? Simultaneously, I did feel this like heightened sense of something. I'm not even fully sure what word I would use, but like, You know, when you pull into a parking lot, you know people there. It's like that sense of, I have a nice car and I feel proud of that. I remember in the past, like, I've always enjoyed my cars, but most of my cars previous to this one, like, I didn't really feel proud of them, at least after like a little time of having them. So, like, having a quote luxury car, there is that element of status when you pull up to the valet or something. Like, it's just like, this air of more confidence. And again, that's like rooted in this desire to impress people with a material thing, which is interesting. But sometimes that would lead me to feel insecure. And in fact, I experienced this in the past week. I I traveled a bit with my car and a lot of people that I was seeing for the first time in a while were complimenting it. Like, wow, that's so cool that you have a Tesla. You know, I'd love to have one. Or one person even commented something about my finances, like making assumptions that I had a ton of money because I had a Tesla. Like it was this comment around like, well, you know, you have a Tesla and this assumption without them knowing anything about my finances and how I afford that car. And I thought that was really interesting. And it also made me a bit uncomfortable, you know, like people making assumptions about who you are and what your means are based on something material without knowing what it took to get that thing. And that's part of this interesting element of what you're discussing too, Jason. It's like all of the assumptions we can make about something like that. But there's so many ways that people can acquire things. It could be even a dishonest you know, way of, of getting it, or it could be a pure luck. Like what if you won the lottery or what if you received an inheritance or what if you got a raise and then you lost your job? Like there's so many things that can happen. And I think it's important to remember that there's so much more to the story behind these purchases. And also recognizing that just because you have nice things doesn't mean that you feel that great about them. You know, like I can buy all these wonderful clothes, but what if I don't feel that great about myself after I take them off? You know, it's just a temporary thing. It's like a Band-Aid. And I'll also mention like clothes are so fascinating too. At the secondhand store, Jason, there were a number of high-end designer clothes there and you're getting them at a fraction of the price too. And there's so many ways that you can get really expensive things, but secondhand. So you get them at like half or less or even more off, right? 
And so people can make all these assumptions about what you're wearing, but maybe you're borrowing it, you know, like it might not even really be yours. So we're putting on this facade to perhaps make ourselves feel good. But if it's not really ours or it's or it's been acquired in a way that isn't what people believed it to be acquired in, then does it really have the same meaning to us, if that makes sense? This brings up a really specific story. Years ago, my mom, Susan, went to, God, I can't remember what foreign country she went to. My mom did some international traveling. And in a lot of international countries, they will have street vendors and shops that have, in some cases, really authentic knockoffs, they call them, or recreations of super expensive stuff like, you know, Gucci bags and Prada and things like that. So my mom got a Mont Blanc pen, which apparently, if you're into pens, is an incredibly expensive high-end manufacturer of pens. So she found this street vendor or whatever it was that had this Mont Blanc pen. And so she buys the Mont Blanc pen. I don't I couldn't tell you how much, you know, maybe 40 bucks, 50 bucks. And and these pens, I want, you know, as I'm talking in real time, I wonder how much they are, because I don't know. Mont Blanc. Let me just see Mont Blanc pens. What what do these go for? I have no idea. I'm not Okay, so like a basic, okay, so I see a whole range here. The lowest it looks like is $240, and on the higher end, they're almost $1,100, right? So Mont Blanc makes pens, watches. $200 to $1,000 is not what I would consider an inexpensive writing utensil. That, that's that's kind of heady for a pen. So she gets a Mont Blanc pen. She takes it to work, and her boss like walks into the office and notices on her desk, like this Mont Blanc pen displayed on her desk. And I guess the reaction that he had was like, oh, Su- Susan, I didn't know you had a Mont Blanc pen. Like he had this visceral reaction to my mother having a Mont Blanc pen. All the while, she's not going to let on that it was like a $40, $50 knockoff from wherever, China, Indonesia, wherever it came from. But it looked so real that he, her boss, who is very much into high-end stuff, like he's a man who's very much into high, high high-end expensive things, was so impressed that apparently it just like kind of colored their interaction for a while because she had a Mont Blanc pen. So to your point, Whitney, is it about having the actual thing or... What if we find something that is a recreation of a Prada, a Mont Blanc, a Hermes bag, whatever it is? And if it looks like, acts like, smells like, feels like the actual thing, why do we need to spend, you know, the $5,000 on a clutch? What if we can buy $50 clutch and it looks and feels and acts like the, it's an interesting thing, right? Because if people, if the whole idea of social equity and impressing people is a part of this, well, then not, why not just get a fake one and save the money? I don't know. It's not like you can buy a fake Tesla. I mean, there's a limit to this conversation, right? (laughs) You can't like have someone build you a knockoff Tesla. So there's a limit to this idea. But nonetheless, I think it goes back to why are we buying the things we buy? Are we buying them because they're quality and we want them to last? Because that's a different conversation, right? If it's a thing we want to buy and have for years or decades of our life, then maybe buying a knockoff or a recreation is not the best choice because maybe the quality of the materials isn't up to par. But if we're doing it because we want to impress people and we don't give a shit about the quality, I really think this comes back to why are we buying what we're buying? Are we clear about the reasons of why we are putting our money into the places we're putting it? I mean, I really think this comes down to a question of intent and motivation, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think many people understand this on a surface level, but it becomes very addicting. I mean, we've talked about shopping retail therapy before and how some people are very aware that they're doing it, but that doesn't mean that they know how to stop or they feel motivated to stop. And it it seems very innocent, but finances are a really sensitive thing, you know? And if you add it all up, you might be getting in some really extreme debt just because you want therapy. And you might as well actually get therapy at that rate. You know, <laughs> like the money some people spend on clothing or cars or whatever else, like it's insane, you know? And that it's interesting too. Like 
my car is expensive. I've had it for about three years and I'm used to the payments now that it's just like part of what I'm paying for. But I remember before I got that car thinking like, I feel a little bit crazy getting this car, like spending that amount of money. But now I'm used to it. And there's a lot I could do with that money instead. I enjoy my car and I've already made the decision and the commitment to have it. If I really wanted to, I could sell it, right? But like sometimes we get into situations where like, all right, here we are, made this decision. I mean, I was even thinking about this with animals, Jason. Like there was um, a TikTok I saw earlier today discussing pet rent and how silly it is that landlords charge extra for for having pets. And I paused and I watched this and I thought, wow, first of all, I'm really grateful I don't have to pay pet rent. I'm not sure. I think I have in the past. I must have at some point. I know you have, Jason. And then I thought, wow, like if you think about how much a pet costs or a child's costs ahead of time, it can really get you to step back and say, am I sure that I want to spend this much money? Like with a pet, hopefully you will have them for many years, 10 plus if you get them when they're young. That's a lot of money if you add it up, not just the rent, but the food and all the other stuff. And, you know, it, in, in some ways, it's, it's like comparable to what I'm saying with the car. Like you're deciding to get something that you're going to have for many years, a car probably five plus years. And again, you add up the sticker cost and the interest and the gas or the charging or whatever else that you're spending, the insurance. It's a big financial commitment. And that's why it's important to really understand why you're buying something, especially if it's a long-term payment. I think as we've discussed a little bit throughout the show, Jason, like people deciding to have kids, like it sounds like this great idea, this easy thing, but kids are very expensive and they're a huge commitment, time, energy, resources, emotionally. So if you're just having a kid because you want some form of fulfillment and love in your life, like you really have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And I think some people have children and then they're like, oh shit, this is nice, but it's a lot harder, a lot more expensive, a lot more time, et cetera, than I really thought out. So this can be said about many of our decisions, Jason, like it maybe clothes doesn't seem like that big of a deal because it's a relatively minor expense, but there are some really big decisions that we make that have long-term ripple effects on our lives. And if we're not conscious of why we really want them and if we really want them, then we might end up actually feeling more stressed than we were before we even acquired them. Well, I think this is also an important moment to bring up. This was months and months and months ago, so I don't know if I can find the article, but it was talking about psychology of consumerism and how people will often, most of the time, make decisions that they think are based on rationality, but they're using the illusion of rationality to justify, which is a mostly emotional purchase. And so there's two examples that come to mind, right? So I have a, a next door neighbor who recently bought like a giant SUV, like an extended wheelbase Tahoe, just giant, fully loaded, brand new 2021 just a monstrosity of an SUV, right? And I was like, oh, it's a nice SUV, man. Like, and he's like, oh, thanks. And then when I told him it was nice, because it's a it's a beautiful SUV if you're into that kind of thing, he went on this whole thing about like all these justifications of why he bought it to me. And I don't know him that well. He's just my next door neighbor, right? And he goes on like this few minute rant. Oh yeah, I got it because blah, 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 blah. He gives me all these reasons. And I'm like, all the reasons you just listed in my mind, I'm like, you could have bought a Honda CRV. You could have bought a Subaru Forester. You could have bought a Honda Accord. You didn't need that big ass motherfucking tank of an S. You didn't. But you're giving me all of these rationalizations for what is essentially an emotional slash egoic purchase. You didn't need that. You're telling me you needed it. But all the reasons you're telling me you need it, you could have bought something else that gets better gas mileage. That's less of a strain on the environment that serves all of the needs you mentioned in a smaller, more efficient vehicle. But you got the giant ass extended wheelbase with the 22 inch rims. So he's trying to justify his purchase through rationalization, which was a completely egoic. 
a lot of us do this. I mean, if you really think about consumer psychology, we do this shit all the time. Yeah, well, I needed it because blah, 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 blah. And it's like, wait, you could have gotten a less expensive, more fit, whatever it is. I'm just using that as an example. The flip side of it too with children, we have a couple close friends, I'm not going to name them for privacy purposes, Whitney, that many, many years ago when you and I stayed with them, I remember there was a, a magazine article in the bathroom and it was talking about the cost of what it takes to raise a child in America through like the first 18 to 20 years of their life. And it was a stultifying amount of money. From what I recall, I think it was close to a million dollars. It was a stultifying amount of money. And I remember having the conversation with our two friends and they were kind of debating, right? Well, do we want to have a kid because, you know, the environmental concerns and resources. And, and we were talking about this article of like, holy shit, when you really look at what it costs to raise a child in America on a whatever middle class budget, it was a shocking amount of money. Now, no judgment. They ended up having a kid anyway. The kid is lovely. He's beautiful. We love them. But rationally speaking, they were aware of what it would potentially cost to raise this child, and they did it anyway. So we as humans make decisions that are out of pure emotion and ego all of the time and then back it up with rationality, or we completely ignore the rationality and be like, yeah, I know it's going to cost that much, and I know it's going to be this, but fuck it. I want to. Fuck it. I want to do this. And we throw rationality out the window. We are a fascinating species. That's all I'm going to say with that comp. We are a fascinating species with how we choose to justify our actions and our choices. It's mesmerizing to me. And now as I say that, I'm actually looking at my decisions in life and how I've chosen to justify them. <laughs> like, how have I justified being in this house? How have I justified what I choose to spend money on? And it's interesting, Whitney, because you talk about you know the animal conversation. It's not that I wouldn't have chosen to have my companion animals. But if you would have done the math and been like, this is how much it's going to cost to feed them medical care, litter, food, toys, I would have been like, mm. I don't think it would have dissuaded me, but it's a chunk of money every month to take care of these fools, right? I'm looking at you, Bella. You're expensive as shit, but she's worth it. She's worth it, right? But nonetheless, I think if you see the math up front for certain things, I don't know. This also kind of goes into the house conversation, because as you know, and as we've discussed on the podcast, me looking at purchasing a house and moving out of state. And one of the reasons is because the incredible cost of living in real estate in California right now. But if I break down the mortgage cost and I look at sort of like a 30 year mortgage and I look at the math and what it's going to cost in interest, it's like, damn, I mean, I wonder how many people who have the means and the credit score and the down payment actually do the math on what a house is actually going to cost over 30 years. It's fucking crazy. It really is if you do the math on it. So for me, I'm realizing, Whitney, that when I do get around to buying a house, I don't want to be house poor and I don't want to extend myself because oh, but it's got to have this and got to have that. And I mean, yes, I mean, having five animals and a partner, it has to have a certain amount of square footage. I mean, we're not going to pack. <laughs> we're not going to pack that many humans and animals into too tiny of a space. Nonetheless, I think it's just interesting to look at what is happening right now at this moment in the housing market. What's interesting is happening in the car market, because right now we're in a bubble where the average price of a vehicle in America the median price has gone over $40,000 for the first time in history. It's the highest median price for a car purchase ever in history. And in many places like Los Angeles and Orange County, we also have the highest median house prices in history. The median house price for a house in Orange County right now is over 800000 Just pause on this for a second. $800,000. Some people might not sneeze on that. I sneeze on that because I look into the monthly payments and I look at what an $800,000 house is going to cost over 30 years. And it's like, holy crap, that's crazy. So I think it is important to do the math on things and look like when I'm about to make this commitment, can I reasonably handle this? Not just the monthly payment, but what is it going to cost me over years of doing this? I always say this too, like, I know I'm on a long tangent, but when people like win a car on the price is right, 
Like there was a story years ago about a woman who won like an Audi R10 convertible spider that is like a $220,000 car. And like she won it on the price is right. But then she had to turn around and sell it right away because she couldn't afford the insurance. She couldn't afford the oil changes and the maintenance on a $220,000 supercar. So on the surface, it's like, yeah, this is great. But then you get into the actual like living with the thing and it can often look very, very different when you get into the nuts and bolts of what it takes to live with a thing like that. This also was part of my personal experience when I either earlier this year in 2021 or the end of 2020, I came to terms with my debt. And for so many years, Jason, I just like didn't want to think about it because I hadn't created the structure in my life to pay more things with cash and less on credit and come up with a debt payment plan, like reduction or what's the term? Like I wanted to get rid of my debt. And I don't know what it was. I think one day, I w- maybe I was doing my taxes or something. I was going through and the system I was using, just seeing all the numbers come up. And it hit me. I think I was just finally ready to acknowledge it. And I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, why am I spending all this money on interest? Do I actually need to live this way? And in the past, I had chosen to put things on credit cards because of financial tough times, challenges. I remember in 2012, I had almost paid down all my credit card debt. And then I made some lifestyle choices and didn't have a lot of income coming in. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to just live off my credit cards. And I chose not to pay attention to the interest because I just felt like I was doing what I had to do. And I don't have regrets about that, but now it's very much the opposite. Like, I don't want to put anything on my credit cards. I cannot wait to pay them off, which should be at the end of this year. And it's a, <laughs> it's kind of weird because like, even though I want time to go by slowly in general, I'm really excited for the end of the year to reach that milestone. But I also wonder, Jason, like after I've paid off my credit cards... First of all, it's possible I might put money on them again. Like there's no guarantee I'm going to decide never to be back in credit card debt. But I keep wondering what that will feel like and how long the high is going to last of, okay, well, I've reached this financial milestone. I've reached this goal, but will it just be like a shrug and I'm on with my life? You know, like I thought about this actually when I paid off one of the cars I bought, I think it was the first car that I had fully paid for myself. My first two cars, I think my parents co-signed on and were helping me with payments, fortunately. But I think it was my third car. It was like 100% mine. And I remember the day of making the final payment vaguely, but then it was just like, all right, I own this car. I'm done paying for it, you know? And I think about that too with the Tesla. I have another three years approximately unless I pay it off faster. But like right now I'm like, okay, I'm halfway through, you know, my payments, my halfway through my loan for the car. And I see the the amount getting lower and lower, just like I'm seeing my debt go down. But like, it'll probably just be a shrug at some point in the future. And that's kind of weird. Like when you're in this moment of anticipation of a goal, And then like it happens, you realize how fleeting all of this is. And it's just kind of weird cognitively because you're like, well, it matters, but it simultaneously doesn't matter. I have so many things to riff on this. And I'm so glad you brought this up, Wit, because I think for a lot of people, psychologically, the chase and the struggle and the idea of getting to something is often more, what is the word? sustaining or motivating than actually achieving the thing like the idea of paying off your debt completely the idea of having a fully paid off tesla the idea for me of being a homeowner the idea of me accomplishing something in my career i mean you and i could substitute so many things and don't you think that sometimes for me i'm only speaking for myself i'm curious how you feel that the pursuit of something dreaming about accomplishing something 
is sometimes more engaging, fulfilling, rewarding than when you actually do it. Like the idea for me of having, you know, a TV series or being on a fucking magazine cover, whatever, if I'm honest about it was more motivating and satisfying and felt more purposeful. And then when it happened, it was kind of like, oh, oh yeah. Okay. I did that. And now it's done. Fuck. It reminds me of the story. And there's, there's historians who doubt or, you know, are contentious about whether or not this happened, but I feel like it's been shared so much and in so many texts about Alexander the Great. And when the story goes historically that when Alexander the Great, quote, conquered the world, right? Of course, at that time, we didn't really know how big the world was, but the parts of the countries and the empires that Alexander the Great conquered, that after he had done so, the story goes that he went into his chamber and wept and wept and wept and cried because there were no other empires to conquer. There were no other battles to fight. There was no one else that he had to defeat right? He had defeated and conquered all the armies, all the empires. He was the conqueror of the world. In his view, of course, we now know that the earth was much bigger. But at that time, his perception was like, I defeated everyone. There's no more enemies. I literally have control of all these empires now. And he cried because there was nothing else for him to do. And I feel like that is whether or not that story is historically accurate. I think that parable as an example of how human psychology works is true. We want things so fucking bad. We want the relationship. We want the wife. We want the Hermes bag. We want the Tesla. We want the TV show. We want the house. We want the 800 credit score. Like my credit score just hit 800. And I told you months ago, that's what I wanted with. I was like, I'm, I'm fucking determined. I want that 800 credit score. Well, I did it. It's 801 now which is considered, quote, perfect credit. Like, after you hit 800, apparently, it doesn't matter whether you're at 828, 38, for like, I'll get the best rates, fine. But in a vacuum, who fucking, ca- like, I hit it, and it was. I was like, okay. I didn't celebrate. I didn't go out for a sake and a piece of chocolate. I was like, cool, 801, great. Now, here's the real. When it comes time to buy a house, when it comes time to get a new car, that will be a very handy thing to have a 800. They'll be like, great, here's the, here's the money. In a vacuum, it doesn't matter. Who gives a shit? I'm not going or like, I've got a, like, someone we know posted, like, at the early beginning of the year, like, they had an 820 credit score. They posted it on social media. They're like, hashtag adulting. I'm like, hashtag no one gives a fuck. No one fucking cares on social media about your fucking credit score. (laughs) No one fucking cares. You know? And so I say this not to brag. Anyone listen? Well, great, Jason. Like, no one gives a shit about my fucking credit score, except for the mortgage lender and the auto lender. And when it comes time for me to do things, right? So, in a vacuum, to your point, Whitney, no one gives a shit. It doesn't matter. But when it comes time for me to do something with it and leverage it socially for a mortgage or a car loan, it will be very handy. But right now, it's just a number on a screen. Who? Okay. But it was. It was like, okay, I did it. I hit the goal. So what? And some people might say, you need to celebrate yourself, Jason. You're not, which is true. I don't really celebrate myself. But until it comes time to buy a house or a car, it's meaningless. It's interesting because I was actually going to bring that up to you because both of us have been working on our credit scores and I find a lot of pleasure in checking my credit score every single week. (laughs) I actually check my credit score twice a week because the two financial systems I use allow me, they update automatically. And I love like, I know the exact days and times of the week, Jason, that my credit score will be updated. And I get such a high when it goes up. And but most weeks, it stays the same because of the way the frequency in which like the credit cards and bank statements update. And so there's like a few times a month where I'm like, oh, it didn't go up. And then like once or twice a month, it goes up. And I'm like, yes, this is awesome. And it's like, I don't even know why. I don't have anything similar to you, Jason. Like, I don't actually have a reason to care about my credit score. <laughs> I just enjoy it's It's satisfying. And it's another level to paying off my credit card debt. So I get it's like there's just some joy and reward. And, and to your point, I wonder, like, if I will feel empty at a certain point. I'm farther away from the score that you've talked about. So maybe it'll be a, a longer process for me. But it's so interesting to hear you reflect on that. And 
it is kind of sad in a way, like when you hit those milestones. And then, I mean, especially with something like that, you still have further to go, even though like it won't necessarily get you any external rewards, Jason, like your score can go up higher. But I, what's the max credit score? Well, depending on the bureau, most of the bureaus, it, the whole thing is a little bit confusing. But most bureaus, it's 850. It's 350 to 850 is the scale. Now, there's some... Wow sub bureaus that have a 950 score most of it's 850 though and from what i've read again when you crest 800 you're not if you get to 850 or 950 you're not getting better interest rates or more favorable rates like pretty much once you pass 800 that's the top tier so i guess anything beyond that like if you get to 850 which i was reading some articles online about people who have eight like perfect absolutely perfect credit scores and they're like it doesn't do anything more for me like it's just bragging yeah. rights it's just bragging rights with who i don't know are you going to a bar like so tim what kind of credit score do you have oh yeah only only 790 well whiskey's on me but actually whiskey's on you like who's br- you know anyway <laughs> yeah it's interesting it's just like any other metric and our collective obsession with metrics. It's not that different from like your GPA. Like who really cares about your GPA besides you, your parents, your college admissions? Like, I mean, you could put it on your resume, but like, it's it's also similar to college. Like, it's very rare that anyone cares that much about where you went to college. Certain jobs, maybe. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be this imperfect employee or anything. So all of these little scores, I think they're just a way for us to stay motivated. And it's also part of the system. I think about this too with weight, you know, our body weights. And that like, I remember when I was losing weight in 2018 and 2019, I had gotten to a point where I was really uncomfortable with my body size and I became determined to lose weight. And I'm actually, to be transparent, it's it's uncomfortable to talk about this, but I'm at that point right now and I've been reflecting on like, well, I don't like the number I'm seeing and I don't feel that confident in my body, but how important is it for me to lose the weight? Because nobody else is carrying around a scale weighing me. Nobody's asking me. Literally, the only person I'm discussing my weight with was my doctor recently. And my doctor didn't seem concerned, but I see that number and feel concerned. It's a trigger for me. So I've been more conscious of it and I feel this like determination to lose weight, but it feels very weird now. And I'm reflecting on what that was like three years ago when I was in a similar spot. I think because I went through the process of losing a significant amount of weight in 2018 and 2019. And I remember, Jason, like I just wanted to lose more and more. And it became like a bit of an obsession, which certainly isn't healthy. And then, like, I hit this point where I felt good in my body, but it wasn't that big of a difference, to be honest. Like, People mentioned it, like they noticed that I lost weight, but that honestly makes me feel very uncomfortable. And that's something that I currently dread. Like if I do lose weight again, I don't want people to point out that I quote, oh, you look so great. I mean, I'll never forget this woman, Jason, who saw me after I lost probably like 20 to 30 pounds. It was in 2019 because that's when I had you know reached that point. And she was like, I didn't even recognize. She like made this huge deal about it. And it made me feel so uncomfortable because then I thought, wow, she's praising me for this weight that honestly is unsustainable for me. You know, that's the other thing. Like this whole conversation, whether we're talking about finances, credit scores, body weight, those all these type of metrics, most of them are really hard to sustain. You know, with your credit score, Jason, I'm curious, like, how long will you be in that range? Can you stay there? How long will I be debt-free once I reach that? How long until I decide to buy another car? Will I have paid off my car? You know, same thing with my body. That, I guess, is the big reflection I've been having lately is I don't really know where my body wants to be 
like where I'm, I came back up to the weight that I was three years ago when I decided to lose weight. So I'm like, hmm, maybe my body actually wants to be at this weight if I hadn't been able to sustain it. That's part of my curiosity right now is I don't necessarily want to lose a certain amount of weight. I just like to fit in my clothes a little bit better. I'd like to feel better, but that's that's like part of this whole conversation is like, does any of this really make us feel better? Like when we make more money or lose more weight or get a certain credit score, get a car, acquire these things, like if it's not sustainable, then is it really better? If it's a constant wanting, if it's a constant trying, and if we're never really satisfied, and that's part of my point here is like, I think I'm very grateful for the awareness I had in 2019, where I just recognized that, yeah, I lost a significant amount of money, but it wasn't, I mean, I lost a significant amount of weight, but it wasn't fully sustainable. And I don't know like if it drastically improved my life aside from fitting in certain clothes and occasionally people telling me how great I looked, which didn't ultimately bring me that much joy. So this all awareness is like when we're going to gain or lose things for for a certain goal, if it's all just temporary, are we just constantly chasing temporary highs? And do we want to live our lives that way? And I feel like it's all up to each of us to decide. There's no right or wrong, you know? Like that's the other thing with weight. Since all since just from the metric standpoint and money. Like to your point, Jason, does anybody really care how much you weigh, how much money you have, what your credit score is, what things you acquire? They might care for a very short amount of time, right? People may feel like I'm more attractive if I weigh less. But first of all, I have to decide do I care? how much I weigh. And their caring about my weight is so generally very temporary. They're going to take one glance at me, decide how they feel about my body size and shape, and move on with their lives. Is it worth me spending all of this time obsessing over that stuff? Now, of course, this is a much longer conversation because there's a lot more to you know, our individual concerns with our body shapes and sizes. But my point is, for the most part, and to your point, Jason, like none of this really matters that much. So we have to decide, is the struggle worth all of that short experiences of joy and satisfaction? Like, I guess the, if you weigh it out, like the struggle is so much to achieve these things. Like for you to get that credit score, Jason, takes some amount of struggle. For me to pay off my credit card debt has been a struggle. I mean, not an enormous one. Like I shifted some things around and make it work, but it's a good amount of money that I'm spending every month to pay off my debt faster. So it is a struggle. And I think that'll be worth it because it's got a long-term ripple effect, right? But weight, I can tell you from my experience, but also from research, Weight loss generally doesn't last that long. Your body is going to fluctuate throughout most of your life, or you're going to find some range that you're in that you keep coming back to over and over again. So is it worth trying so hard to change something that can't really be sustained in terms of joy or a long-term experience of it? When you talk about people caring, Whitney... I think the reason that that some people care, depending on the nature of your relationship, is that it's a reflection on them through association. That if if I'm hanging out with you and I perceive you to be overweight or obese, and my sense of self is tied to the company I keep, then I am, without even being conscious of it, worried about what people will think if my friends are obese or disheveled or they drive a shitty car or they wear, quote, crappy clothes, I think the reason people care, some, is they're worried about the reflection on them through the association of being with you and their judgments about your appearance, your weight, your financial situation, your material things, all of that. I think that's why people care, because they're worried about what it says about them. Not everyone, but I think that's very, very common. I think the other side of this too, in kind of conclusion, is chasing accomplishment 
and chasing the dragon of success, we live in a society where that is constantly rewarded, right? You see it in sports, you see it in business, you see it in art. The people who have accomplished, you know, diamond records, won championships, the billionaires in our world, well, they're rewarded with privileges and access that other people don't get. So, of course, people are going to chase that because in a binary materialistic world, the winners get the spoils and everyone else gets the scraps. It's a fucked up system. I mean, I want to say this. My opinion is I think that the system of achievement and finance and everything that we are in is fucked up and imbalanced in a lot of ways. But what you see is, oh, well, if I play the game a certain way, I get a lot of those spoils, man. So I'm going to keep going because I want the spoils. I want the access. I want the association. And it also reminds me of a quote that I've shared in our early days of the podcast, which is one of my favorite quotes from Martina Navratilova, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. She said, the moment of victory is too short to live for that and nothing else. Yet... We're chasing those victory moments all the time, aren't we? Because we want that high. And we want what we think society is going to give to us by being a, quote, winner. That's a whole nother subject we could get into, the psychology of winning, the psychology of losing, the binary system. But I think we get the point, right? Is chasing that all the time, Whitney, I think has a lot of very precarious psychological implications. All of that being said, We are curious, dear listener, dear reader, dear watcher, however you're consuming this podcast, how you feel about impulse buying, how you feel about the emotional aspects and the rationality versus emotions regarding our life decisions, what we buy, who we choose to associate with. There's a lot of layers to this conversation, so we're curious how you feel. If you have thoughts, musings smart-ass remarks, whatever you want to share with us, you can email us at hello at wellevator.com, which is also our website, again, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, where we'll have the show notes for this episode, the transcript, the resources to the research studies we mentioned about emotions and psychology and impulse buying, if you want to read those. And we also have a great Patreon account where our brand new private podcast, This hits the spot lives if you want to get our product reviews our book recommendations the things we're super excited about in life we're sharing all of those on our private podcast we'll have the link there if you want to join our patreon group of amazing humans we will have all of that in the show notes for this episode of this might get uncomfortable thanks for being with us as always and diving down these psychological emotional rabbit holes and we'll be back with another episode soon thanks so much Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.